Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for inviting me to speak at the UK National Prayer Breakfast on the topic God and Society, Belief in God in 21st Century Britain. In his brilliant recent documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in Tudor England, broadcaster and author Melvin Bragg described the monumental yet largely forgotten work of William Tyndale. Persecuted in England, he fled to the continent where he translated the Bible into English, thus unchaining it so that even the plowboy could understand it. The ordinary person could come to God directly through his word without any institutional intermediaries. Tyndale was betrayed, strangled, and burnt. His last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. His Bible translation was smuggled into England in bales of cotton and barrels of oil. Resistance to it was so fierce that it was publicly burnt on the steps of St. Paul's. And yet it was not long before Tyndale's prayer was answered, for Henry VIII commissioned an English Bible to be placed in every church in the realm. Tyndale's Bible prevailed to have immeasurable influence on our history, governance, culture, and language. And yet, although we no longer burn the Bible in this country, a vocal minority of influential minds mock and ridicule it. Tyndale's plowboy risks influential minds telling him that those who taught him the Christian faith were guilty of child abuse. God is a pernicious delusion. Science has shown that faith in him is irrational and should be kept firmly in the private space until, of course, religion disappears altogether. As a result of that, many believers feel marginalized and disenfranchised. However, ladies and gentlemen, speaking as a scientist, I would like to affirm that science has not buried God. The irony is, in fact, that it was the Bible that saturated Europe with the idea that a rational, intelligent God created and sustains the universe and set the stage for modern science. As C.S. Lewis put it, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. So far from hindering science, belief in God was the very motor that drove it. And yet it is insisted still we must choose between God and science. Not so. We no more have to choose between God and science as an explanation for the cosmos than we have to choose between Sir Frank Whittle and science as an explanation for the jet engine. These explanations do not compete or conflict, but complement one another. Both are necessary. God is not the same kind of explanation as science is. God is the explanation of why there is a universe at all in which science can be done. That is why there still are, as there always have been, distinguished scientists in our country who believe in God. There is a very strong link between the rational intelligibility of the universe and the rationality of God. Some atheists would like to break that link, but the attempt fails. For the doing of science involves believing that science can be done, which involves, of course, trusting our human cognitive abilities. However, according to atheism, those abilities are 
the product of mindless, unguided natural processes. If that is the case, why should I trust anything they tell me? After all, if you believed that your computer was the product of mindless processes, would you trust it? Of course not. So atheism's reduction of thought to the meaningless firing of synapses in the brain undermines the very foundations of the rationality that's needed to construct or understand or believe in any kind of argument whatsoever, including those arguments used to defend atheism. Atheism, ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest to you, does not simply shoot itself in the foot, it shoots itself in the brain. The ultimate irony here is that atheism would appear to be at war, not only with God, but also with science. It looks very much as if atheism fits Richard Dawkins' definition of a delusion. That is a persistent false belief held in the face of strong contrary evidence. In a Guardian interview recently, the eminent physicist Stephen Hawking said, heaven is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. And I'm afraid I yielded to the temptation of the one-liner and replied by the same token, atheism seems to me to be a fairy story for people afraid of the light. Atheism rightly dismisses caricatures of God as an old man in the sky or a god of the gaps. It crumbles, however, when faced with God, the creative word who renders the universe intelligible and who supports it in its existence. Wittgenstein was exactly right to say that the meaning of the world will not be found within the world. And it should by now be clear that there is no necessary conflict between science and God. The real conflict is between worldviews, the worldviews of atheism and theism. Many people in the United Kingdom wish to discuss that conflict and wish to weigh up the evidence on each side, but the difficulty is that the playing field is not level. Since atheism has become so dominant in the culture, it is often regarded as the default position in the media. That means that those who hold it often fail to see that atheism involves faith commitments every bit as much as Christianity or any other religion. You can see that from the way people talk of faith schools, oblivious to the fact that atheism is a faith system that is freely taught in many of our educational institutions. If teaching Christianity is bad for children, what about teaching atheism? Now, the imbalance in our society has come about by a secularist redefinition of faith as a religious term that means believing where there is no evidence. But that is blind faith. Not all faith is blind. Indeed, faith is an everyday term. It means trust and always raises the question of evidence. If you want a loan, the bank will want to see the evidence that justifies its faith in you. And Christianity is evidence-based. St. Luke, who has proved himself to be a brilliant historian, tells the Roman official Theophilus that he had traced everything from the beginning in order that Theophilus could be certain about what he believed. And Luke records that when St. Paul spoke to the philosophers at Athens, he claimed that God had provided evidence to everyone that Jesus was who he claimed to be by raising him from the dead.
And of course, to that historical evidence must be added the confirmation of personal experience. God, after all, is not a theory but a person. And faith in him, according to Christianity, far from being blind, is a rational, personal commitment based on cumulative evidence of many kinds. But why should we bother with all of this? After all, science is not everyone's concern. And if we're not atheists, why don't we just muddle along with pick and mix religion, whatever gives us comfort, and not bother with the question of what is true? The main reason, ladies and gentlemen, is that ideas have consequences. Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs pointed out in The Spectator this month that the greatest of all atheists, Friedrich Nietzsche, understood the consequences of jettisoning God with terrifying clarity, yet his latter-day successors failed to grasp it at all. Sachs writes, time and again in his later writings, Nietzsche tells us that losing Christian faith will mean abandoning Christian morality. No more love your neighbor as yourself. Instead, the will to power. No more thou shalt not. Instead, people would live by the law of nature, the strong dominating or eliminating the weak. Quoting Nietzsche, an act of injury, violence, exploitation, or destruction cannot be unjust as such because life functions essentially in an injurious, violent, exploitative, and destructive manner. I want to suggest to you that the moral drift of contemporary society proves Nietzsche right. We are in danger of forgetting the contribution of Christianity to the moral foundations of our society. Melvin Bragg, again, writing last week, it bewilders me, he says, that people who call themselves atheists for wholly understandable reasons of not believing in a God, a resurrection, a virgin birth, a trinity, think that this gives them the right to dismiss a massive body of knowledge which has informed people for almost 2,000 years has led to some of the greatest artifacts mankind has ever seen, and for better and for worse, has to be taken into account if we think at all of the past in terms of morality, history, and art. Thankfully, not all atheists are so dismissive. Leading German thinker Jürgen Habermas writes this, and he's an atheist, universalistic egalitarianism from which sprang the ideals of freedom, the individual morality of conscience, human rights, and democracy is the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. To this day, there is no alternative to it. Everything else is just idle postmodern talk. And examples of that legacy abound. Christian involvement in the foundation of universities, schools, hospitals, hospices, factory reform and the abolition of slavery, and our British institutions. Commenting on the 60th anniversary of Her Majesty's reign, the Times said, more than any other event, the coronation service clearly proclaims the derivation of all power and authority from God and the Christian basis on which government is exercised, justice administered, and the state defended. 
For centuries in our country, God has been the ultimate moral authority. Nowadays, under the increasing pressure of postmodern moral relativism, the urgent question that will not go away, however much people may wish it, is this. If we jettison God, what is the authority behind morality? C.S. Lewis argued, if we ask why ought I to be unselfish, and you reply, because it's good for society, we may then ask, why should I care what is good for society? And then you will have to say, because you ought to be unselfish, which simply brings us back to where we started. Anyone who isn't prepared to bite the self-defeating bullet of moral subjectivism faces the dilemma summarized by H.P. Owen. On the one hand, objective moral claims transcend every human person. On the other hand, it is contradictory to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. The only solution to this paradox is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. You see, if we abolish the transcendent and absolute, we are inexorably driven to the relative and subjective. So girl guides will no longer pledge allegiance to God, but promise to be true to themselves. However, if there is no morality beyond personal choice, if there is no eternal base for values external to humanity. How can moral standards be anything but limited human conventions, ultimately meaningless products of blind, unguided natural processes? Listen to Richard Dawkins' description of a universe without God. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. But if the London bombers were simply dancing to their DNA, no one could blame them. Morality turns out to be a delusion. Indeed, biologists Michael Roos and E.O. Wilson say as much. Morality, or what we think is morality, is simply, they say, an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes to get us to cooperate. Ideas have consequences. And if we teach people that morality is ultimately illusion, they will begin to believe it. Many already have. With the result that our institutions are awash with scandal, families are increasingly fractured, People are lonelier and more distressed than ever, and trust is at an all-time low. We've sown a wind. We've reaped a whirlwind. 
because in this brave new world of blind physical forces, good and evil cease to exist, as we've heard. And so does justice. And here is a tragic irony. For all their moral criticism of God, the new atheists ironically deny the one thing that gives moral values stability, ultimate justice. Millions of people get no justice in this life, and according to atheism, death is the end, so they will never get justice. Their moral sense and their desire for justice will prove to have been a hideous delusion. There is no hope. The terrorists who dance to the music of their DNA over the bodies of their victims get away with it. The new atheists tell us that faith in God is a childish delusion, like sucking on a dummy for baseless comfort. But what about their atheism? According to Polish Nobel laureate Czesław Miłosz, who knew about these things, a true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that for our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders, we are not going to be judged. Reason and experience surely tell us that such thinking is morally absurd. And here the Bible agrees. It teaches that death is not the end. The great good news is that there is to be a final judgment at which justice will be done and done fairly. The judge's appointment has been confirmed by his resurrection from the dead. And Christianity therefore makes an immeasurably important positive contribution to society by upholding the values written on the consciences of all human beings, whether or not they believe in God. Those values on which the freedoms and flourishing of humanity depends. And of course that instantly leads to a dilemma. The problem of my human guilt on the one hand and my desire for justice on the other. I want justice, but what will justice say to me? My human problem, ladies and gentlemen, is not that I don't know the moral rules. Oh, I know them. It's just I haven't the power to live that way. And here again, Christianity positively addresses that deeper question with its message of grace and hope, because Christianity is not primarily about rules and regulations. Its central message is about the possibility of relationship with God. To those that suffer, it talks about a God who suffer. To those who are burdened with guilt and failure, it speaks of forgiveness. To those who are in turmoil, it offers peace. And to those who struggle in despair, it offers new life as a free gift that needs only to be received. And that, if I may say so, is why Christ repudiated violence. The tragedy of those who've taken up weapons to defend Christ and his message in my own country, for instance, is that they have not been following him but disobeying him. When tried before the Roman procurator Pilate for inciting political violence, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would have been fighting. To this end, I was born. And to this end, I came into the world 
that I should bear witness to the truth. Pilate publicly declared Jesus innocent. He could see what is obvious, that truth cannot be imposed by force, especially when it is truth about forgiveness, love, and peace with God. And this, be it noted, is the polar opposite of fundamentalisms, both religious and secular, that are fueled by the will to power and disregard human rights and values. This does not mean that there are no problems. Pain and evil cast their shadow over our lives. But in the cross of Christ, we say that God has not remained a distant spectator. The creative word became flesh and dwelt among us. God took part in human suffering. As Archbishop Justin Welby said at Easter, I think the cross is the great point at which the suffering and sorrow, the torture, the trial, the sin and yuck of this world ends up on God's shoulders out of love for us. These are big issues, aren't they? God and science, faith and evidence, meaning and morality, pain and suffering. But I believe that in the Christian message that is part of our heritage, we have immense resources to deal with them. How can we do this in a pluralistic society? According to the Bible, every human being has an infinite value because he or she is made in the image of God. That holds whether they believe in God or not. And it's evidenced by the fact that in every religion and philosophy on earth, we find a version of the golden rule, treat others as you would wish to be treated yourself. And my experience is that if we adopt that attitude, then the way is open for respectful yet vigorous and honest discussion. My University of Oxford puts great store by the Socratic tradition. Follow the evidence where it leads. But people in the United Kingdom cannot assess the evidence unless they are exposed to it from all sides and not just one. In the 16th century, William Tyndale gave his life to open up discussion of the biblical worldview so that people could make a rational choice. And in this 21st century, we need the courage to create public space for exactly the same discussion. In his message to us this morning, the Prime Minister David Cameron says this, it is encouraging that Christianity still plays such a vital role in our national life. It has had immense historic influence in the development of our culture and national institutions. And it motivates British people to wonderful acts of service and self-sacrifice. We are a country with a Christian heritage, and we should not be afraid to say so.
Ladies and gentlemen, no one in this country seems to have the slightest problem with doing atheism in public. Let us therefore not be ashamed of doing God. Thank you very much.